All right, welcome back to Hellspan. I know it's been forever since I've recorded, but I'm back. And this is part three of The Mind-Gut Connection by Dr. Emerin Mayer. In this episode, I will be discussing how to optimize brain-gut health. So I will be discussing the lessons we can learn from modern-day hunter-gatherers, the role of diet in shaping a baby's gut-brain dialogue, how new diets can alter our gut microbiota, the onslaught of the North American diet, and finally, the simple road towards wellness and optimal health. So to begin, I will be discussing the lessons we can learn from hunter-gatherers. So in North America today, it's really hard to get away from an unnatural diet, one that's full of sweeteners, emulsifiers, flavorings, and colorings, with extra fat, added sugar, and vital gluten, and loaded with calories. Since the food we eat influences the activities of our gut microbiota, what exactly would our microbiota look like if we ate the diet our bodies evolved with? So one way to do this is by studying people who still follow a prehistoric lifestyle, whose diet is not much different from the diets our bodies evolved to eat over tens of thousands of years. So he is talking about the world's remaining primitive agrarian hunter-gatherers. These are the rural Malawians and the Yanomami people. So if you listen to the earlier podcast, I discussed the Yanomami people before. I talked about how Dr. Mayer was in the Amazon rainforest with this tribe and he was seeing this lady give a natural childbirth where her baby just, she just kind of squatted and her baby just plopped to the ground and there was no OB, there was no surgery. It was just a very natural birth. And the benefits of having your baby exposed to both the natural vaginal flora as well as some of the soil and how that can ultimately affect uh, one's microbiome when they get older. So studying their their eating habits and their gut microbes gives us a window back in time to the period when humans and microbes kind of first started their symbiotic lives together. Now, we would often see several men leaving the uh, shabona with bow and arrow in the early morning hours and returning later in the day with their prey. So he's discussing what he's seeing in these tribes. And the meat from these animals is roasted or baked because they don't use any oils or animal fats. Nothing is fried. The woman would hang the prepared meat pieces on a pole within the family area, including monkey heads and pieces of snake, frogs, and birds together with bushels of uh, platanos, which is a form of banana. So the Yonomami families depend on the enormous diversity of the forest for survival and the high diversity of their environment is reflected in the diversity of their gut microbiomes. In addition to their staple diet of fruits and vegetables, they also employ a large number of plant products for other purposes, including uh, various plant-derived poisons that are used to make uh, arrowheads for fishing and hunting, and hundreds of different plants, berries, and seeds that are consumed for uh, dietary, medicinal, and uh, hallucinogenic purposes. And the Yanomami people also employed the principle of fermentation. So Dr. Mayer actually witnessed how a group of people smashed a large amount of uh, platanos into a puree inside of a dugout canoe, canoe until natural fermentation turned kind of the slurry into an alcoholic beverage, which then these men would, would consume in large quantities. So this sort of like natural fermentation process. And overall... The diets of these people were rich in plant foods, supplemented with occasional bits of meat. 
But unlike the processed and fat-enriched beef and pork products that make up the bulk of the North American meat supply, the meat the Yanomamis ate came from the animals that were wild, lean, and healthy. So these people actually uh, expressed this sort of diet that is very simple. It's this uh, phrase that Michael Pollan came up in his The Omnivore's Dilemma book. And it can be summed up in seven words. It's eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So there's been literally thousands of books written on dieting, weight loss, etc. But if you want to explain to someone just literally the healthiest diet possible, it's those seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So we get too caught up in semantics and eat this much calories of this food and avoid this group. But if you just stick to those seven basic words, it can actually make you go a long way uh, when it comes to your diet and overall health. So next, I'm going to kind of move on to where it all begins. And some of the most consequential influences of food on the gut microbiome start long before we can make our own decisions about what we eat and which prebiotics we choose. So a study by a microbiologist out of Cornell and her team highlighted the importance uh, influence of early diet on the gut microbiota of a healthy baby boy and analyzed at 60 time points from birth to age two and a half. So the boy was breastfed exclusively for the first four and a half months. And we saw there was a rich flora of this bifidobacteria that, and, and lacto, lactobacillus as well. So this helped uh, facilitate the digestion of this milk carbohydrate uh, from the breast milk. And this was not surprising. Um, and, but what, su- what was surprising was that before he had consumed any formula or even a bite of solid food, gut microbes such as Provotella appeared that could metabolize complex carbohydrates from plants. So this meant that the baby's gut microbiota were already prepared for solid food before the baby had ever eaten anything. So that was truly interesting. Your gut actually will change with time and prepare itself to digest food before it's even ready, before you even consume anything. And in the early months of the baby's life, relatively few species have lived in the gut. And events like fever, introduction of peas into the diet, or antibiotic treatment from an ear infection caused this child's microbial community to kind of fluctuate dramatically. But that diversity climbed by the month, and by the time the boy was two and a half, his gut gut microbiome had stabilized and come to resemble that of an adult. So the point of this story is, our gut microbiome is constantly changing from the time we are born to two and a half, three years old. And our body and our gut microbe is actually preparing us to digest certain uh, foods uh, when we're ready. Now I'm going to kind of move on to the crucial role of diet in shaping a a baby's gut-brain dialogue. So I mentioned, you know, this breast milk. While mothers have always known that breast milk is the optimal food for their infant, recent gut microbiome science has revealed unexpected mechanisms by which this health benefit is mediated. So besides all those nutrients essential for the child's development, breast milk contains prebiotics, more specifically, certain oligosaccharides. And we call these oligosaccharides human milk oligosaccharides or HMOs. So what do these HMOs actually do? 
So once these HMOs reach their target, they'd help nourish the beneficial microbiota, in particular the bifidobacterium species, that are able to really break, uh, partially break them down into uh, kind of short-chain fatty acids and other metabolites. Now these breakdown products create this certain environment which helps favor the growth of good microbes over potential pathogens. Now HMOs have direct antimicrobial effects uh, against like such pathogens, which is reflected in a reduction of microbial um, infections kind of affecting the infant. So HMOs are essential to the development of a healthy infant microbiome and for kind of this protection against intestinal infections at a time when a certain baby's microbiome has kind of this low diversity and is not really ready to defend against, you know, certain infections. So this is just, again, the importance of breastfeeding uh, your baby and breastfeeding them, you know, as long as possible. And the longitudinal studies on breastfed infants have shown that the longer an infant is breastfed, the larger his or her brain is. And this, of course, the size of the brain is associated with improved cognitive development. Breastfeeding can even enhance a baby's emotional and social development. So there was this German investigator who tested eight-month-old infants who had been exclusively breastfed earlier in their lives for their ability to kind of recognize emotions uh, from a person's body language, which, uh, depicted, which was depicted by images of a person who was happy or showed kind of this expression of fear. And the results were very dramatic. So the infants who were breastfed longer responded more to happy body expressions than those who had been breastfed for a shorter period. So what's the actual mechanism of this? It's, it's oxytocin. So the results of the German study suggest that it does so in part through the action of oxytocin. Oxytocin promotes affiliation and this bonding, suggesting that oxytocin release during nursing enhances this mother-child uh, bonding. So that's the actual mechanism by which... Uh, breastfeeding can actually enhance a, a baby's emotional and social development. So we're going to move on and discuss how a new diet can actually alter your gut microbiome. So there was this group of Harvard uh, researchers who studied the acute effects of switching healthy individuals from their normal diet to either one, a plant-based diet rich in grains, legumes, fruits, and vegetables, or to an extreme animal-based high-fat diet. So interestingly, the animal-based high-fat diet had a greater effect on people's baseline microbiota composition and prevalence of certain species than the plant-based diet did, suggesting that it represented the sort of greater deviation from the subject's default baseline. And those on the animal-based diet actually showed an increased abundance of certain microorganisms that are tolerant to bile acids. So bile acids are sort of required to absorb fat in the intestine. And they also saw that in these people who had a huge animal-based diet, there was a decreased level of bacteria that metabolized complex sugar molecules containing in plants. So again, the point is, based on the food you eat, your gut microbiome will actually switch and help you help you kind of um, feed the diet that you're currently on. So if you're in a high-fat diet, you're going to make more microbiota that help with uh, bile acids and less plants. And we actually see the opposite in those who are in the plant-based diet. 
So as expected, compared to the plant-based diet and the baseline diet, the animal-based diet resulted in a significantly higher concentration of products from amino acid fermentation and lower levels of metabolites resulting from carbohydrate fermentation. So again, this sort of diversity from the foods we eat. So to move forward, I will be discussing how diet changes the, com- the gut-brain conversation. So most undigested plant-derived carbohydrates are metabolized by, metabolized by microbes in the colon into short-chain fatty acids. For example, uh, butyrate. So butyrate is one of these short-chain fatty, fatty acids, and it's called butyrate because it has this buttery odor. And there's other short-chain fatty acids as well, for example, acetate. Uh, carbon dioxide, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. These are all short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids, it not only plays a crucial role in providing food for the cells uh, lining the colon, preventing it from becoming leaky, but it also has many health-promoting effects on the enteric nervous system, so the nervous system of our guts. And these short-chain fatty acids represent a key player in the communication between the gut and the brain in the regulation of food intake, in particular in creating a feeling of satiety, which causes us to stop eating beyond our body's needs. So I definitely discussed this in How Not to Diet by Dr. Michael Greger. I sort of explain how when we eat certain plant-based products um, that are high in short-chain fatty acids, we make these short-chain fatty acids in our gut, they travel to the brain, and they release chemicals, for example, We get an increase in the amount of uh, alpha MSH, so melanocyte stimulating hormone. And this actually helps um, increase uh, our satiety. So we're full quicker, so we eat less. And when the short-chain fatty acids also go up to the brain, we see a decrease in this other hormone called neuropeptide Y. And neuropeptide Y normally makes us hungry. So short-chain fatty acids decrease the amount of neuropeptide Y, causing us to be more satiated. So those are just examples of how short-chain fatty acids in the food we eat can actually affect our satiety. Now, it has been estimated that human gut microbiome has the potential to produce some 500,000 distinct metabolites, known collectively as the metabolome. And many of these metabolites are neuroactive, which means they can influence your nervous system. So this is exactly what I was just discussing. Some individual microorganisms produce up to 50 different metabolites, including hormones, neurotransmitters, and other molecules that kind of communicate directly with the nervous system. In other words, the orchestra of your microbes in your gut is fully staffed with seasoned musicians and ready to perform from the first years of life. The diet you choose determines not only the tunes it plays, but also the quality of these tunes. And you ultimately are the conductor of the symphony. So those are the words of Dr. Emran Mayer. And that whole analogy is to kind of illustrate that you're the conductor of this beautiful symphony. And depending on the foods you intake, this will kind of determine how uh, the different tunes that are being played and the quality of these tunes. So I'm going to move forward and discuss the onslaught of the North American diet, what evolution did not foresee. So our bodies definitely did not foresee this diet that we are currently on, the standard American diet. Evolution never anticipated the standard American diet today, and our gut microbiome 
brain access is ill-prepared to come with the consequences of that diet. So in recent decades, changes fueled by the profit-driven activities of corporations involved in the production, processing, and marketing of inexpensive, highly addictive foods have completely altered our diet. This, in turn, has directly affected the interactions between our brains, our guts, and the microbiome. Now, strangely, this has not only happened to our own bodies, but also occurred in our livestock and in our pets as well. So in contrast to our ancestors' kind of protein supply, our livestock today often live out of their lives in the small pens eating um, certain feed like corn that their normal digestive system are not built to handle and which is designed to kind of fatten them as efficiently as possible. These these livestock, our cows, etc., pigs, they ingest their gut they ingest these antibiotics and other chemicals which actually reduce the diversity of their gut microbes and they and make them make them more vulnerable to uh, these kind of serious infections. As far as us, um, how how does a diet high in animal fat harm our brain? Well, for years, scientists have kind of linked chronic disease to being overweight and, and obese. And the theory went kind of like this. So fat cells in our body, they release these certain chemicals called adipokines. So you've heard of cytokines before. Adipokines are just cytokines that are released from our adipose tissue or fat. Now, these inflammatory molecules were thought to kind of be the chief cause of low-grade inflammation, also known as this quote-unquote metabolic endotoxemia. Now, according to this theory, as long as your weight was in the normal range and your waistline hadn't increased, you could continue to kind of indulge in your bacon for breakfast, hamburgers for lunch, you know, tortilla chips, uh, hot dogs, etc., without any ill effects. And obviously, this is not true. In reality, the fat that we eat can affect our own satiety signals. So I discussed satiety signals again, and I'll be discussing how fat can actually affect our satiety singles, signals. So we know from animal experiments that a regular high-fat diet can actually numb the satiety response both at the gut and the brain level, reducing our ability to tell when we've eaten enough. In the gut, that inflammation reduces sensitivity to satiety single signals by sensors on the vagus nerve, which normally tell our hypothalamus that you're full. In your hypothalamus, it reduces sensitivity to satiety signals arriving from the gut. So again, we see with these high fat diets, these, you know, not the good fats, I'm talking about the bad fats, the hamburgers, the hot dogs, these fat laden tortilla chips, it's causing this disruption in our hypothalamus and in our guts and telling us to eat more and more and more. And several other lines of evidence further support that notion that gut microbes play a central role when a high-fat diet causes a systemic inflammation. So it kind of goes like this. We consume uh, you know, saturated fat. We get an increase in inflammation, and we get an increase in lipopolysaccharide. This is going to damage our gut brain, or this is going to damage our, bra- our barrier, our gut barrier, and invoke an immune immune response. This immune response will go to our brain and then our glial cells, which are just these uh, supportive cells in our brain that are not neurons, they help kind of make this immune response and create this inflammation in our brain, creating cognitive deficit 
and brain fog, brain fatigue, etc. So that's actually what's going on when you're eating all these saturated fats. Um, and it's showing how eating so much of these high fat diet can affect this inner workings of your hypothalamus to change your appetite. Uh, so I'm going to move forward into the next section. Um, yeah, I'm going to move forward here. So gut microbes and the dangers of the modern American diet. So today we know that several of the most common types of additives contribute to the low-grade inflammatory state in our bodies that, along with this high fat and sugar intake, endanger our bodies and our brains. So let's kind of take a look at them. And I'm going to begin with the uh, artificial sweetener. So despite their ubiquity, evidence for their promised health benefits is really mixed at best, and evidence for dangers of artificial sweeteners has emerged, including weight gain and increased risk of metabolic disease such as type 2 diabetes. For example, there was this group out of the Wiseman Institute of Science in Jerusalem that showed recently that three commercially available artificial sweeteners, for example, saccharin, sucralose, and aspartame, can actually induce glucose intolerance and produce signs of metabolic syndrome in mice. So this is what the this is what the experiment was. So this researcher's team he proved this conclusion by transplanting stool from mice that consumed artificial sweeteners into germ-free mice that had never eaten sweeteners. And it causes them to kind of develop these glucose intolerance and signs of metabolic syndrome. So it's a, it's a fecal transplant. They take these mice who are ridden with artificial sweeteners, they take their stool, put it in mice who are never touched artificial sweeteners, and those, who, those mice that were being transplanted into they develop these metabolic syndrome. Now, the researchers also showed that sweeteners changed uh, metabolic pathways in gut microbes so that they produce more short-chain fatty acids, which can be absorbed by the colon, providing additional calories. This means that when you consume artificial sweeteners, aspartame, sucralose, saccharin, your body enlists your gut microbiota to harvest more calories in the colon from the microbial metabolic metabolic products to compensate for the missing sugar available in the small intestine. So that's kind of wordy, but what I'm just trying to explain is that when you consume artificial sweeteners, you will extract proportionally more calories from the food you eat. So a lot of times when you eat food, it's not how much you eat really, but really how much you absorb and digest. And aspartame, sucralose, saccharin, they are actually increasing the absorption of calories, causing you to gain more weight. So artificial sweeteners, a lot of debate, you know, Lane Norton's in this in this picture, he says they're okay, but other people are saying they're, they're not okay. I would stay away personally from artificial sweeteners. Um, just from these experiments I just laid out, uh, we saw the induction of a metabolic syndrome, glucose intolerance, insulin, insulin resistance, um, more calories. So, you know, this is all contributing to why we're so sick is these artificial sweeteners along with this high fat, high sugar diet. So the point is avoid artificial sweeteners if you can. Also try to avoid food emulsifiers as well. So the, these kinda, the food industry adds these food emulsifiers routinely to a variety of foods, including mayonnaise, sauces, sauces 
uh, candy, and a range of bakery products. Food emulsifiers can disrupt the protective mucus layer that covers the inner surface of the gas, uh, gastrointestinal tract, giving gut microbes easier access to the gut lining. Food emulsifiers can also break the tight seal formed by the intact intestinal lining, enabling gut bacteria to kind of cross and gain access to nearby immune cells, and this promotes this metabolic toxemia that I was talking about earlier. So avoid the artificial sweeteners, avoid the food emulsifiers. He also talks about gluten, um, but again, I'm not going to go into this uh, gluten that we can find um, in certain you know, breakfast cereals and, and, you know, these certain foods that you need to avoid as well, because they can do similar things like uh, cause this leaky gut and, you know, induce this immune response in our gut, which can travel to our brain, etc. But I would like to move forward and discuss how the North American diet may contribute to chronic diseases of the brain. So this is a super interesting story that Dr. Mayer shares in this, in his book, So this story is about this man named Aubrey. So Aubrey is this 55-year-old man, and he had developed constipation for the longest time. And it gotten so bad to the point where Aubrey really needed these kind of daily laxatives uh, for him to just have regular bowel movements. Now, what Dr. Mayer also noticed in Aubrey was that he developed a lot of these symptoms that look like Parkinson's. So if you know someone with Parkinson's, they develop these very kind of um, similar features that include tremors, you know, resting tremors, um, rigidity, uh, akinesia, postural instability, shuffling gait, these very hallmark features of, of, of Parkinson's. And Dr. Mayer also noticed that uh, Aubrey had a lot of these features as well, along with the constipation. And we know we we know Parkinson's the the mechanism of Parkinson's is due to both a depletion of dopamine in the brain as well as an increase in the clumping of uh, certain proteins as well. So something interesting that Dr. Mayer noticed in this book is that he saw that these symptoms reflected uh, degeneration in several brain regions that contain dopamine as the neurotransmitter, which is involved in motor coordination. But long before these classical symptoms appeared, tremors, rigidity, etc., patients often develop GI symptoms. In fact, such patients, particularly um, such symptoms, particularly constipation, affect up to 80% of Parkinson's patients. And they proceed, they can precede the onset of these classical symptoms of Parkinson's long before. So it turns out that the protein that clumps to form Lewy bodies, which is the protein is called alpha-synuclein, they exist not only in the patient's brain, but also in the nerve cells within their gut. So remember I mentioned Parkinson's, Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease really occurs for kind of a couple of reasons. One is the depletion of dopamine. Two is the clumping of these alpha-synuclein. And in fact, certain nerve cells in the enteric nervous system are, again, the nervous system of our guts, degenerate years before other Parkinson's symptoms actually appear, compromising this elaborate um, functioning of the little brain in the gut, and this actually slows peristalsis and delays the transit of stool through the colon. This is why, again, in 80% of patients with Parkinson's, 
they also develop constipation as well. So it has been. So what's the actual mechanism of this? Um, how does this actually occur? So this is just a hypothesis, but it's been proposed that a person might eat food or drink water containing this neurotropic virus. So neurotropic meaning it's a virus that kind of preferentially infects nerve cells, and this virus would gradually make its way through the lining of the intestine into our enter- enteric nervous system. From there, it can move up the vagus nerve, you know, the, the, the nerve that connects our gut and our brain, and it can travel up to, up to the brain via the vagus nerve. And from the vagus nerve, it can infect the brain stem and move to brain regions, controlling movement and mood. Again, this is just a hypothesis, but I mentioned in, in the previous episode, episode number one, how how actually our, you know, some of these certain diseases of of neurodegeneration can actually start in the gut. So this is just a hypothesis of what's actually going on. And gut microbiota undergo major shifts in Parkinson's patients, as demonstrated by the study performed by um, this researcher out of the University of Helsinki. So the investigators found that the microbiota of Parkinson's patients had reduced level of Provotella bacteria compared with microbiota of healthy people. Now, perhaps not uh, coincidentally, Provotella flourish in the guts of people who eat plant-based diets and are reduced in people who eat fewer plants and more meat, milk, and dairy. Now, we don't know if these gut microbiota changes in patients with Parkinson's disease play any causative role in the disease or if there are consequences of the altered gut environment associated with Parkinson's, but we're just kind of speculating. And they may also, um, they may only become important when other factors are really in place. For example, you know, genetic vulnerability and other environmental toxins. So the point is, again, that we're seeing these people with these certain diseases have a certain um, number or quantity of specific bacteria like Provotella. Um, so that's something interesting. And if this hypothesis really pans out, then early dietary interventions to kind of calm the gut's immune system might help prevent the onset of Parkinson's disease in high-risk patients or at least slow its progression. Uh, so that was the story of Aubrey. Um, luckily, Dr. Mayer was able to help him. And um, yeah, that was a good story. So moving forward to the very last chapter, the simple road towards wellness and optimal health. So really, what is optimal health? What is a healthy gut microbiome? So to keep our gut microbes uh, healthy, we really need to know what constitutes a healthy gut microbiome. And when Dr. Mayer asked Daniel Blumstein, who was an ecologist and a UCLA colleague, to describe a healthy ecologic state, he reminded Dr. Mayer that in natural habitats, there can actually be several stable healthy states. In other words, all ecosystems display multiple stable states. And in the case of the human microbial ecosystem, some stable states are associated with health and others with disease. So many factors actually determine the landscape of your gut microbiome. Uh, analogous to the factors that have kind of shaped the natural landscapes. 
So what, what are some things, obviously, genetic makeup, eating habits, lifestyle. Um, but let's look at diversity first. So one of the generally agreed upon criteria for a healthy gut microbiome has been its diversity and the abundance of microbial species uh, present in it. So as in the natural ecosystem around us, high diversity of the microbiome means resilience and low diversity means vulnerability to uh, you know, certain uh, pathologies. Now, how about stability and resilience? So although you may carry different microbial species than your coworker or your cousin, you tend to carry the same key set of species for long periods. And this stability is critical for your health and well-being. It ensures that friendly gut microbes can return quickly to an equilibrium state following this kind of a stress-related perturbation, which allows them to keep up their beneficial activities over time. So this makes the microbiome resilient. Now, kind of this very last section is improving your health by targeting the gut microbiome. So this is stuff you can do starting today, starting right now to improve your gut microbiome. So the first thing he mentions is just practice natural and organic farming of your gut microbiome. So you want to consider your gut microbiome as this farm and your microbiota are these kind of